0: Everybody, the Iconoclastically Bombastic Network welcomes you to the live broadcast of the debate between the Southern man out of New York City, Jay Halla, and the elitist Brit out of Ohio, Marcus Anthony. I'm going to go over the format for us real quick, and then I'm going to get these gentlemen introdu- introduced to you guys. The format for tonight will be as follows. We'll be asking 10 questions about college football from past to present. The responding participant will have two minutes to answer the question, and the opposing participant will have one minute to offer a rebuttal. After answering all of the questions, each participant gets a three-minute closing statement. And tonight we're doing this a little bit differently. We don't have judges, so everyone that's listening, please vote on Ivy Sports after this debate on who you think is the winner. Gentlemen, before we get into questions, I want you guys to introduce yourselves, and we're going to start with Jay. Jay, are you there? Hello. Jay, are you there? Are
1: you Can you hear me?
0: Yes, sir. Go yeah. ahead and introduce yourself.
1: Hello, everyone. This is the one, the only, Jay Hala. It's my pleasure to be here. Pleasure to debate the Marcus Anthony. Everyone knows I'm from the South, but I've been all over and my
0: knowledge is unquestionable, and I'm here to show and prove. So let's
2: get ready to rumble. All right, Marcus. Uh, for those of you who somehow escaped my grasp within IBS, I'm Marcus Anthony, the only, I guess we could say Brit, in, in the entire group. I'm an advocate for Buckeye Nation and Big Ten Nation, as I am an NBA student at the Ohio State University and I'd say very few people outside of Herb Street probably know as much about college football as I so we'll see what Jay Holler can bring to the table all
0: right guys thank you we're going to get started with the questions here we had a uh, coin toss beforehand and Holla won that and he will go first so starting you with you Mr. Jay Holla who do you think are the top five coaches of the modern era? And that is 1980 to today.
1: 1980 to today. Oh, man, that's a good question. Um, the top coach, number one coach, easily has to be uh, Saban as one. Um, gosh. Go with. 2, I would have to go with, uh, you know what, even though I hate to admit it, Urban Meyer would have to be 2, Urban Meyer would have to be 2, 3, I would say, uh Les Miles would be 3, 4, hmm. You know what uh, What's the coach from Nebraska Uh, um, He had uh, Lawrence Phillips and Tommy Frazier Uh, He would be four And number five would have to be the old ball coach uh, Steve Spurrier Those
0: would be my top five. All right. Marcus, you got one minute to rebut that?
2: Uh, I'll say my top five is a little different and for different reasons. I'll say since 1980 to really today, I'd go with Saban, Urban Meyer, Tom Osborne, Frank Beamer, and Pete Carroll. I know a lot of people will probably question Frank Beamer, but I think if you look at his sustained wins and the success he's had from the time he got to Virginia Tech until now, you know, the the model and the mold was against him. He was at a very small rural school in Virginia, really surrounded by powers in the north, Michigan, Ohio State, Penn State, and also powers from the south, the Florida State, the Floridas, the Alabama. But he set a mold. When Michael Vick hit center stage and we watched them against Florida State, what he meant to Virginia Tech football, not just from an athletic standpoint, but what he did for the actual university and bringing it to the ACC into the big time, into modern college Five football, and he's a lock. And I think Saban, Urban Meyer, we know what Pete Carroll and
0: Tom Osborne are those guys really meant to to college football. All right, that's time. All right, let's move on to the second question, and this one goes to you, Marcus. What makes wait, the wait, program wait, dominant, wait, wait. and who are the current dominant programs? Can you repeat that again? I'm sorry. I think Jay
2: Holler was trying to get something in.
0: Yeah. What makes a program dominant and who are the current dominant programs?
2: Well, I think easily what makes a program dominant, the lifeline of any program is recruiting and the access to recruits. I think that you look at the great coaches. I think there are two great coaches in college football, and that's Urban Meyer and Nick Saban. What makes them great is not only are they tacticians, are they tied to the X's and O's, but they're also life – they know their lifeline is recruiting, and they give it all in in both sides. And I think recruiting, accessibility, and marketability of the program makes you dominant. And also you got to go out and win games. It doesn't matter what conference you're in, whether it's the ACC, the Big Ten, the SEC. You have to go out and win games and have players in – a position to bring prominence to your program. I think if you see anyone who's anyone that's been paying attention to football in the last two weeks, you've seen what Ohio State ha, is and has become. We, we've been very dominant uh, under <clears throat> under Jim Trussell, excuse me, but Urban Meyer has taken that program from being r- the second best program in the nation during the BCS era to now I would say the second dominant program in college football. Because you see, over 122 NFL personnel was here on campus in Columbus, and I think you have to. It's it's a very tough landscape to, to recruit to recruit nowadays, just because there's so much accessibility between you know social media, TV time, and just the globalization of, of college football. I guess you can say is that it, it, it's it's everywhere, and not just and outside of that is also the fan base. I think, you know, you look at these polls, and I ask myself all the time, how can a program as successful as Alabama not be the number one hater program in the country? It's all about perception. It's how people perceive you around the country. And Urban Meyer can go into any living room, anywhere in the country, and and be able to nail a recruit. So I think the two dominant programs are Alabama, Ohio State. But I think a a lot of credit also has to be given to Bob Stoops in Oklahoma. And also – as much, as much as I hate to say it, it's
0: Jimbo Fisher at Florida State. Um, all right. Jay, do you have a rebuttal to that?
1: <laughs> um, Urban Meyer, he's a, he's a great recruiter. Um, he had a lot of success in the South, which contributes to his success now. Um, I don't think recruits are – Chomping at the bit to go to Ohio State because it's in Ohio. I think they're going to Ohio State because of urban. Um, The most uh, dominant programs easily, I would say, has to be Florida State, Alabama, um, of course, recruits Georgia in the top three easily. Um, I have to agree with Marcus on the, you know, you have to win games where it counts. Um, Even with that said, coaching coaching makes a big difference, and we know how coaching has impacted teams like the Jordans of the world. And I also just want to rebut on the Frank Beamer. I mean, the whole Michael Vick, I think that was a Michael Vick thing more than that was a Frank Beamer thing. Uh, Because once Michael Vick left, no one else. Outside of Virginia, knew
0: Virginia Tech was, and so let's just be real about that. Um, All right, you're at time on that. We're going to move on to the third question, and that's I'll going to say stay this. with Let you. Say
1: this. I don't.
2: I don't. See ahead. How Georgia can be in a dominant program when you haven't won the marquee game in your sport in over thirty-five years? Those programs that you just named are national championship winners, and I don't think anybody's chomping at the bit to go to Tuscaloosa either. With outside of Nick Saban, so yeah, these coaches do bring a lot. And the back to the Virginia Tech thing, yeah, Michael Vick brought that program to national limelight. But look at the sustained success that he had at the ACC when when they was there. I mean, what I, I want to say, what five or six BCS bowl games uh, uh, initially before, you know, I think time passed Frank Beamer by, but that that's in the past. We can continue.
0: <clears throat> All right, Jason, since Marcus jumped in there. I'm going to give you a few seconds to to respond to that Georgia and uh, Virginia Tech attack there.
1: Yeah, that's cool. I mean, Virginia Tech, I mean, honestly, nobody really outside of Virginia really cared for Virginia Tech. I mean, when Michael Vick played in that bowl game, that's when everyone was paying attention to Virginia Tech. Outside of that, um, no one has ever been afraid of Virginia Tech, even when his brother Marcus played, which was like a poor man's league, you know, no one was afraid of him because of how dumb he was off the field, which kind of impacted his game on the field. So, we really Tech really wasn't as you know uh, relevant as it may appear to you know residents over genius but
0: you know it's all good perception is All right guys let's let's move is. along here to the third question and Jay this is going to go to you and it's something that's uh near and dear to your heart so um I'll we'll get right into this so question 3 some say the SEC is hands down the best conference in the game Is this hype real or overstated?
1: Uh, It's no question that it's real. Um, I mean, it's no secret that I'm an SEC homer. However, uh, the numbers don't lie. Um, You can look at any NFL roster. Even the NFL roster today, four schools that have uh, NFL roster players are from the SEC. That's LSU, that's Alabama that's Georgia and that's Florida Um, and I think FSU is in the the top five as well Um, OSU is not uh, any other school in the Big Ten is nowhere even close to that so the the proof is in the pudding Um, everyone knows the SEC is a murderous world when we play each other that's why only certain teams can get out to play the other cream puffs of the the NCAA field Um, um, hands down the, the best conference
0: going. Not even close. All right, Marcus, come in with the rebuttal. I know that you feel passionately about this subject as well. Can you repeat
2: the question for me one time, please? I'm sorry.
0: Yes, sir. Some say the SEC is hands down the best conference in the game. Is this hype real or is it overstated?
2: The SEC from top to bottom is the best conference, um, I think, in college football. But it's a very top-heavy league. I think outside of – Alabama, LSU, I think everyone else is is kind of marginal, and I think you see a lot of people really living off the coattails of the success of Nick Saban, uh, Les Les Miles, and some of the more marquee programs in college football. And I, I think, you know, I think that the biggest thing we look at is the SEC beat a lot of people up, right, in national championship games. And that was the perception because a lot, of, a lot. You ask Oregon, the biggest difference between the Pac-10, the Pac-12, excuse me, the Big Ten and the SEC was the ability to have the jumbo athletes, the offensive linemen, defensive like, linemen, the linebackers who can continually stay on the field and, con- and continuously play and match up with them. We, the Ohio State University, showed that hey, that we're we're getting a lot of players from that area and guys who can can play at that level. So, but. But there's no debating that. I think anyone who sees that the SEC is the best conference in college football, but I think I think the gap is closing very quickly. I think I like what we're doing in the Big Ten, especially in the, in the um, <clears throat> Big Ten East. Excuse me. You see Harbaugh, you see the Urban Meyer, you see DJ Durkin now in Maryland, and James Franklin at Penn State. And I think the Big Twelve is, is kind of close. So we'll we'll see what happens.
0: All right, guys. Moving on. The next question is going to go to you, Marcus. Uh, This is going to get more into the actual play on the field. What do you think the impact of the spread offense has been on college football?
2: Well, anyone who knows me knows that I'm an advocate of the spread offense at at all levels, whether it's collegially or, or the pro level. What the spread offense has done to college football, it's revolutionized the game. I think we've seen systems revolutionized the game. We've seen with, with the West Coast offenses brought to the game or with the flex bone, these indigenous college football schemes. What the spread offense is allowed to do is, is, is taking the play caller somewhat out of the game. That's why a guy, a tactician, an X and O guy like Nick Saban hates the spread offense because what it does is it doesn't put as much power in his hand. Now you're keeping guys on, on the field longer. Excuse me. You're keeping these guys on the field longer. And what's really happening is the scheme is kind of, almost negated because you watch what our brows did. People call them foolish to, to do this, but they're really spreading you horizontally and vertically across the field. And what it's really done is it makes the game faster, more exciting, and more fun. And I, I think it can only help college football. And I know a lot of people say the spread offense is maybe the downfall of football and quarterbacking. I, I think it's completely different. I think it's allowed guys to have a dual skill set. And while I know the reads and the progression and the spread off for most spread offenses are very basic, and these guys are, you know, these guys are recruited to play in this system. The, the number one goal of uh, Urban Meyer or Bob Stoops or Nick Saban is to win games at their respective university and not to necessarily produce NFL talent. That's just a byproduct of their success. And I think the spread offense has done more for the game than any system we I, I can remember whether it's the west coast the flexbone or whatever it is and it's only going to make the game faster so now you see a lot of defenses now excuse me are are very versatile more multiple now because you know because Vincent. teams with three and four wide receiver packages so that that's really all I have to say on the spread offense I think it is what it is you know some people hate it some people love it but I think it's only been great for the game
0: All right Jay
1: spread offense um, I think there's a 2016 version of run and shoot. I mean, it, it has its bells and whistles. It looks great. It has set up the game of college, but it doesn't translate to the NFL. Uh, so we see how that works with Chip Kelly. And, you know, the, it, it speeds up the game, but if you're not moving the sticks, then your defense stays on the field longer than it has to. Get back out there really quick. By the end of the game, they have no wins. And the other team is taking advantage of that. So, I mean, it's good for college players uh, uh, in the college college game. Uh, it makes it exciting for Saturday afternoon. But the only downfall to it, even in college, is if you have a, a defensive coach who's seen it multiple times. Ten seconds. You know, all you have to do is punch punch the quarterback in the mop several times, and uh, all that smoke and mirror goes right out the window.
0: All right, guys, let's move on to the next question, the fifth question. We're about halfway through. Um, Jay, this one's going to you. Christian McCaffrey exploded onto the scene last season. Is he the best player in college football going into this season? And add on to that, how do you think he would fare if he were in the SEC as opposed to the Pac-12? You'll
1: break it up. I didn't hear the first part.
0: Christian McCaffrey exploded onto the scene last season. Do you feel that he's the best player in college football going into this coming season? And how do you think he would fare if he were in the SEC?
1: Hell no. Are you, are you kidding me? I mean, he looks good, you know. He was good in a few plays, but look who they were playing. Come on, man, let's get real. I mean, he's, he's a decent player. Um, and, you know, he made – Played pretty good in the SEC. Let's say if he played for, let's say Mississippi State or Mississippi or Vanderbilt, he probably would shine, be a starter. Uh, but uh, he couldn't run next to a Chubb or or uh, uh, Alexander Obama. I mean, nah, let's not let's let's not kid ourselves. But he's a decent back. He's a decent back. You know, you gotta give give him some love. But I wouldn't say the best player coming in to the next season. Get out of here. <laughs>
0: All right, Marcus?
2: Uh,
1: I I
2: think Leonard Fournette is the best player coming into this college football season, and not just because he's an, he's an SEC back because he's the LSU, but I think if you watch the film, his individual talent just shines. I mean, you watch what he does behind the line of scrimmage to set up his actual runs and hit a hole, but also his physical talent when he does get by. I mean, he's, he's out running guys. He's running over guys. He sets up blocks downfield. He catches the ball well. But I feel Christian McCaffrey, he, I think he would be a great back in any conference. I think, you know, people look at him. People forget he's six one, about 205. He's a bigger back. And he, he has the size and the skill to, to maintain and, and dominate in, in the SEC. And I don't think just because he's at you know, I think people want to discredit him because he's at Stanford or even in Pac-12. He's a great player. Best player? No. He's the most valuable player, I think, in college football. Um, not just to, you know, to what Stanford wants to do, man. And they're very much like an SEC team. I, I know they don't have the elite athletes, but they're a 21 personnel, two tight end, round and pound, and they're going to put it down your throat. And they, they find packages and ways to get him out in the open field.
1: Time. But I think
0: he would be equally as successful in the SEC. All right. Let's move on to the next question. This one, uh kind of a longer question, so I may give you guys some more time in your response. Um, we are ahead of the clock, so Marcus, this one's going to start with you. Who currently has the top program in each of the Power 5 conferences? Oh.
2: Each of the Power 5 conferences, I think we can start with the SEC. That's obvious. That's Alabama. The Big Ten, none other than the Ohio State University. In the pac 12 Honestly, you have to go with Oregon. I know what USC did under the Carroll and BCS era, but I think if you look at from what Chip Kelly and what Mark Helfrich has done in Oregon, they have a top program in the Pac-12 currently. The Big 12, you know, big game Bob. I mean, I know he doesn't win. He earned the big game moniker by getting to the big game and not winning the big game. I'd go with Oklahoma. And in the ACC, we got to go with Clemson. I think what Dabo Sweeney has really done, to bring Clemson out of that not good enough category. I know, people, the easiest choice is to go with Florida State. And don't get me wrong, Jimbo Fish is an excellent coach. He's won a national title. He's won ACC titles. But i think looking forward. Dabo Sweeney is going to be a guy to be reckoned with because of his recruiting model. He's recruiting at a high rate. He's very media-friendly and media-savvy. And Death Valley is a beautiful place, and it's a great place to play college football and also get a great education.
1: All right, Jay? I would have to say um, for the power size, Big 12, I would have to go with Oklahoma. Even though they don't show up when it counts, it's not too much in the Big 12 anyway. So I would have to say, you know, they always somehow find a way into the big game. I don't know if it's because of that schedule, but uh, somehow they find a way into the playoffs or somewhere close to it. Back 12 um, I think the the the, the easy pick would be Oregon, um, but actually I like Stanford right now. Um, they have a stronger uh, recruiting program going right now than I would say Oregon. I think they would be the favorite this coming year. Um, 15, it's mm, <laughs> up to Michigan and Ohio State. Um, Ohio State, they did win Credit Field scheduling, but um, I think Hardwild is coming on strong uh, in that division. ACC, I would have to say, Florida State. Clemson is, you know, sometimes they can do flash in a pan and start Clemsoning. Clemson-ing on uh, the SEC, you know, Alabama is still uh, top program in the SEC as of right, as of now. But things are changing, so
2: we'll see. Now, I want to say this. I know that Clemson was subjective against Florida State. I was kind of forecasting. But Michigan, the school up north, the big house, <laughs> seriously? You got to be kidding me. You're talking hey, about man. the. Listen, we're the premier program in the Big Ten, hands down, from top to bottom. If you look at our roster, it's much it's oh, it's God. much built like an SEC program. And you look at the success that Urban Meyer has had here in Columbus, and you power that with Jim Trussell. Tr- Jim Trussell, you got to be kidding me, man! I, I don't even want to go into the statistic because that is so so so. Trussell's record is a little tainted. Let's
1: be real. I mean, from the from the. Bogus play cards and championship games to the players who weren't eligible to play. To it's just a whole litany of things. But we're talking
2: about a program that went ninety-eight and twenty-seven during the BCS era, right? Right.
1: We right. went four and two right. in
2: BCS bowl games. We won a national oh. title over the BCS period. Then let's bring but it what, into the uh, Urban Meyer era. We were the first undisputed national champion. There was no BCS voters. It was one on
1: the field. Yeah, with, the, I, I, with don't, I don't I don't see how Michigan cake. is even in our realm. I mean, every win is not a equal win. Let's <laughs> be real here. Every win is not a every W is not a not a not a, a a legit W. I mean, anybody can pad their stats with Cupcake Community College and you know, all these other For things, sure. Right? I, I, I would say, say that our to, schedule has there, been like weak. I'm
2: just Absolutely. That. I mean, you know what I say all the time that we've benefited from being bad. And you guys are just bad because everyone else is good. So, I mean, I don't that think getting...
1: you yeah. <laughs> can. That sounds good. That sounds good. That All right, Holla, too. I'm going to
0: give you the last <laughs> word on this and then we're going to move on. You good on that topic? Yeah, I'm good. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Right. Anybody else, I would have been okay, but not Michigan. Come on, give me a break.
1: I have to that, you know.
0: Question, question number seven, Jay, it's going to you. We're going to zoom out a little bit, and uh, this ought to be some interesting answers. Who is the best college football player of all time? Jay, you go first.
1: Yeah, best. That's, that's a toss up between Deion and Bo Jackson. Um, Deion was a premier player for our state, man. He was electric. Damn. Um, yeah. But, go oh, and it's funny, it's like during the time that Bo hit the scene, no one had seen anything like Bo Jackson. Um, And he totally dominated teams. And I remember when they were facing, um, what's the guy, Bos- uh, Bos- uh Bosworth, that was his name. He was like the great white hype at the time. and He was supposed to be the one that the Bo stopper, and man, Bo blew the socks off, not to clean out. And during that time, Bo was just He's just electric. There was nothing like him on the field. Uh, but then Dion came along, and almost every time he touched the ball, it was like uh, it was a highlight reel. So, and that's a tough one. Uh, it's a toss-up between Dion and Bo. Easily.
0: Marcus, what do you got on that? Uh, the best player
2: in college football history. Yep. I'm surprised Holly didn't go with Herschel Walker. But uh, I'm going to go with another SEC great. Um, yeah, it is a very subjective question, but I'll go with Tim Tebow. Um, I think he's one of the best college football players I've seen. Um, and he may not I, – I guess the popular vote would, you know, to put the better athlete above Tim Tebow. But you got to look, he won a Heisman Trophy, two-time SEC champ, two-time national champion, I think two-time first-team All-American, three-time or two-time All-SEC. And what he meant to that Florida Gator program, he was the heart and soul of that program during the Urban Meyer years. And he's one of the best leaders on and off the field that I've seen. And he really brought, you know, that quarterback position to to the new heights. You know, you see the spread offense and and into what – he kind of fit the mold perfectly for what they wanted to do in Florida. So I'll I'll go with Tim Tebow. I think second – would be, you know, for me, would be a Herschel Walker, I think, a running back who just dominated, you know, college football at that time. And he was a physical freak, a physical marvel. But it's so subjective. But but I'll go with Tebow. I'm pretty strong with with Tim Tebow. Tim Tim Tebow wasn't
1: even the best player on the team. Oh, my gosh. I I mean, I got it. He may not have been the best NFL prospect on that field. But I I think – Tim Tebow is a product of the system, very much like a lot of the Ohio State players, product of the system. Once they leave the system, what
2: do they do? How does that translate elsewhere? It doesn't. Well, yeah, I mean, I got it. Was he the best NFL talent? No. I I would say that he was physically limited as a passer. And he was, you know, he was mentally limited understanding the reasons for aggressions and how to be a quarterback. He had some success at Denver, but just talking collegiately, no, I, I think he he was the best college football player I can say that that I've seen.
1: If he didn't have all that talent at Florida around him, we would not be talking about Tim Tebow. Let's just yeah, but real. we can say
2: that we can say that about a, a lot of players, and I think all players are products of their system. And being a great player is not it's more about being a good athlete or being a a good a, a good player at your sport. It's also about having the right fit, having pieces around you to allow you to succeed. And also in a system that understand your, understands your strengths and limitations. I mean, we can go on can, and on and on, on about and how many guys, work. The system guys, whether they're in the NFL yeah. or whether they're in college football or basketball or baseball or soccer or whatever, it, it doesn't matter.
0: All right. Jay, I'm going to give you the last word on this topic, and then we're going to move to the next question.
1: I mean, I that's when you put Tim T. over at LA. That's just like blasphemy. Um, to Tim Power. I mean, like, I know you say you, you recognize he didn't translate to the NFL, but what else do you use as a barometer? Like, if you're, if you're all of this in college, which is, you know, everybody's good in college, but if it doesn't translate elsewhere, what other barometer do you use to determine greatness?
2: I think the 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 college game is secular, right? From the NFL. We're going to move
0: on from this and move into the next question. Okay. And that's Marcus, you got the next question. Y you, You've already kind of touched on it a little bit, but um want to see what you think here. Was the BCS a successful step in the right direction for college football or did it end up being too biased to certain schools?
1: I think the
2: BCS was a success. Um I know a lot of people like to think that it was, it was very biased towards the SEC, but I, I think the BCS was a success because it, it really brought the money truly into college football, and that's really what the conferences wanted. And, you know, was I a fan of the computer vote? No. I think that the analytics can only go so far, and the eyeball test is a lot better measure of, of actual, you know, success or talent than the computers. But I, I think it did a good job. It did what it, it, what it really wanted to do. And that's really pair the best, the number one and the number two team, you know, in college football against each other. So I think if you look at the guys who won national championships over over those years over the BCS era, they they were probably the best team or one of the top teams in college football. Um, The BCS era, I think, it got really clouded because of the SEC dominance. And for sure, I think if you look at the LSU's, the Alabama's who won over that time, and also USC and Oklahoma and Ohio State. I think it did its job. You know, it really bought a lot of viewership, a lot of money back into the conference and back into college football. And that's ultimately what they wanted to do. I know they say, oh, you know, it's about pairing one against number two. No, I think conferences really wanted to come together and find a way where they could continue to streamline money into their pockets. All right, Jake.
1: And that right there was the problem with the BCS. What's the money? Uh, oftentimes schools who had no business in the big game or even close to the big game within the big game because money was the root factor. So it can be spread around to the other lesser schools in the conference. Many schools, and it was such an uproar at the time, that's why they had to go to the playoff system for that very reason. There was so many years where schools who had no business in that top game was there, and schools were left out that were and has it, to it show this better um team with a off marker field, and it showed a lot of times once that team, the alleged number one and number two team got into the championship game and had their socks blown off um but you know it's a, it's a money trail, it's a money game, and everything revolves around money uh but does that make that team the best team you No. Know, and and we saw that a lot of times during the BCS era, when those teams uh, got boat raced once they faced superior talent. Um, but you know, I'm glad the BCS era is over. And uh, now you actually have to show and prove on the field. So certain teams can't just walk in there with cupcake schedules. You know, once they have to face a superior team, we'll see how good they really are. So. Um, I don't think the BCS era was a success. I think it was a, a lot of smoke and mirrors, a lot of food daisy, uh, teams getting unwarranted chips, unwarranted looks. But, you know, it is what it is. I, I don't hate like the player. I hate the game. And I'm glad it was changed. I'm glad it was switched up. Now we got the show improved. So, see how it goes from here on out. I'm looking forward to it.
0: All right, we're going to move to the next question. We're going to shift back to players here. Jay, who do you think were the top players in each decade from the 1980s to now?
1: In what sport?
2: College football, obviously.
1: Um, 1980s. 1980s, I to walk, of course. Um, that was um, how many players are we doing per decade? Just one or two.
0: You can give me one or two. That's fine.
1: All right. Um, The 80s. uh, Michael Irvin. Herschel Walker. The 90s, I would have to say, uh, Dion, um, who else? The quarterback at Florida State, uh, I forget his name. He was the quarterback at Florida State, uh, that played basketball for the Knicks. It was pretty tough. 2000s, early, mm, I'm being biased here. Uh, who else? Heinz Ward was pretty tough, won a Super Bowl. Uh,. Close
0: to time on this. I'm going to give you some extra time, though, because I know it's a, a long question. Two
1: thousand. There's so many players. Gosh. That's all I got. Two
0: thousand. All right, Marcus. Top players in each decade from eighties to now Man. Uh, let's see in the eighties,
2: my votes were Herschel walker um he's a game changing position changing uh player at that at that position and running back, and at that time you know he set every major n c a a rushing record uh the nineties now nah, i I think the nineties is, is is really really tough um but I, I grew up being a, a Gator fan, watching Danny Werfel, um, and knowing how dominant the Funning Gun was. But I think Tommy Frazier, guy that played quarterback at Nebraska for Tom Osborne, and he was the life. He was the, I mean, the heart and soul of the Nebraska team um, for you know to win what two national titles during that time, and I think he was something like 33-2 and or something like that as a starter. And I'm going to kind of be a homer also. Orlando Pace, he revolutionized the tackle position. You know, it went from being just a a, a run-blocking position or a position that's paired with a tight end, but he really set the mold into the new age of the left tackle at that position, at at the tackle position, excuse me. The 2000s, I'll go back to Tim Tebow. I think I don't think anyone has won as much, or has or been the enigma that he has over the 2000 been as good as a player. But I think also you can throw in a Reggie Bush, um, man. You can throw in Marcus Mariota is one of the best players during the 2000s era. Um, that's a tough question; is really subjective. But but those are my guys. Those are the guys I go with. All right.
0: Now we're on to the last question, guys, and Marcus, this one's gonna to go to you first. Is the Pac twelve overlooked due to lack of success or inherent East Coast bias? Is, is, could you say that again? I'm sorry, you're kinda of breaking up on my end. Is the Pac twelve overlooked due to lack of success or inherent East Coast bias? Man, I think I think
2: I think it's it's a little bit of both. I think USC really set the bar very, very high for the Pac-12. Because, I mean, their dominance during that era really set the precedence for, for a lot of schools in the Pac-12. And then, you know, the popul- just the popularization and, and the popularity of Oregon also kind of hurt them. But I, I think that it's... I don't think it's an East Coast bias. I, and I don't think it's also because of, you know, that... It, it's just I, I, That's a hard question, but Man, I don't even know how to answer that because I I just keep thinking about USC and Oregon, the success they had, and how hard I really think it it became for, you know, the Arizonas, the UCLAs, and the other guys in that conference. And, man, yeah, it's it's not East Coast bias. It's really – they're they're a product of their own success, I think. USC really set the bar high, and and it hurt everyone else in that conference, man. I think no – Every no matter how good a team is in that conference is going to always be compared to to the USC era. So in order for them to to, to get out of that, I think they have to find a way to, to to play more games on the East Coast, and which is very very tough for you know the collegiate structure and the collegiate system to to have a Stanford come all the way out to the East Coast and play you know two or three games a season. But I don't know the Pac-12 is just. The Pac-12, man, So I think they're in their own category. I think they'll always be one to two good teams, and and everybody else will just just be okay.
1: Um, All right, Jeff. You're actually actually breaking up, and I kind of fell asleep on on that last answer. Um, Could you repeat that question for me, please?
0: Is is the Pac-12 overlooked due to lack of success or inherent East Coast bias?
1: Um, I don't think they're overlooked because of either of those reasons, honestly. Um, I think they, a lot of times, the pack uh, is overlooked just because of the time that they play their games. Uh, by the time most people on the East Coast have watched football and uh, they're getting to the weekend, they're, they're partying, they've already got their drinks in, they're already going out, to you know, go out for the night and, and party and get their party on in the city. And here comes uh, the Pac-12 games coming on TV. Nobody's watching that. We we already out getting lit. We turn, you know, watching the, watching the games. That takes nothing away from the talent, though. There's still a lot of talent. I mean, actually, USC as of right now has, I think they're like the fifth or sixth uh, best team as far as putting NFL players uh, on rosters currently. Like right behind the SEC schools. So they have a lot of talent, a lot of, a lot of NFL talent uh, from the uh, skill positions. Just a lot of talent and talent, period. Um, but I, I don't think it's a bias. I just think their games are on later than everybody else. And by the time they're, you know, you know getting a look on ESPN on the East Coast, we already turned. We, we drunk. We high. We, we probably be going to see our side piece. You know what I'm saying? you know, we we're not even checking for the game. You know, if the game is even on, you know, while we laid out, we ain't paying attention to it. But it's still there's still a lot of talent out there, um in in the Pac twelve. It's just the you know, the scheduling and the time's The three hour time difference. You know, nobody's watching college football at twelve o'clock at night. That's just not how it works, you know. Uh we might catch the highlights the next day or or, you know, on ESPN the next morning, but I think if and, and and to the to the point of schools from, the, from uh, the West Coast travel needs, a lot of schools are not going to going to schedule those games because uh, it's, it's a proven fact that once you travel across country like that, it's a disadvantage to the West Coast team. So um, it's just they're just going to have to you know keep doing what they're doing. Uh, so I don't think they mind because they're definitely placing players in the NFL. So they may get well, it may seem like a bias, but you know, once they face a, a, a SEC or a Southern school in a bowl game, that's the only time you can truly tell because coaches at that point have about a month to prepare for a game. Then you can kind of see the talent level and the differences and all of that. But during the course of the season, eh, nobody's up for Pac 12 like that. It's just that's just a simple fact, man. We get to it 12, 1 in the morning when they game. Come on, man. Come on.
0: All right, Marcus, Hollow went, went long on that, so I'm going to give you the last word, and then we're going to um, wrap up with some with some closing statements.
2: Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think what he says is, is, is definitely partially true, that people are, you know, they're, they're out living life, and it's really hard to catch a meaningful Pac-12 game, you know, outside of the brand name of the USC. You know, people are tuning in for USC and people are tuning in for Oregon, but it's really hard to draw viewership on a UCLA Arizona State in a half filled Rose Bowl at 12 o'clock Eastern time, you know. So in order for the Pac-12 to to close the gap between all other conferences, unfortunately they are going to have to schedule more East Coast games. And the Pac-12 has to do a, a better job of marketing. I mean, you look at the Big Ten network, the SEC network. I mean, they, they have to start getting on par to, to these um, <clears throat> other media outlets in order for them to really increase their viewership and get in – in the homes of a lot of people. But, yeah, I think the Pac-12 is just going to be who they are, you know. And they're going to be always be secular, kind of from the other four power conferences.
0: All right, guys, that concludes the question portion of the debate. You'll now each have three minutes for closing remarks, starting with Jay. You got it.
1: What is there to say? I mean... I mean, uh I don't, I don't know what you want me to say here as far as closing arguments. Uh I just came here for the popcorn and and show <laughs> show my ass and, you know. I got shit to do. So I, I just I just I just came, you know, I just wanted to be a part of this man, you know. It's no pity to me. I ain't really got no closing arguments. Uh let the Brits speak, man, you know. He
0: he speaks really well, so, you know, let him do his thing, man, you know. All right, Jay, appreciate it. Marcus. I'll say
2: Jay put up a lot more competition than I I thought. I know he probably, you know, it's it's really hard to to come into a debate with, you know, not knowing the questions, and you don't know how to prepare. But, man, like you said, I want to be a part of this. I got tired of seeing the commissioner get beat down. I said, "Well, let let another nickel step up to the plate, (laughs) represent for (laughs) the culture." No, but all jokes aside, man, I know we give each other a hard time, man. But I really, I really enjoy debating against Jay Holler. But I, I I know some of my answers. I was trying to go off of you know outside of the the popular answer and really show my knowledge. I'm sure people don't even remember Tommy Frazier or maybe questioning, you know, maybe a Clemson or maybe a Orlando Pace. But it's, it's all good, man. You know, we all digest and view the game, at, you know, in different ways and different levels. But I still hate the SEC. I still think Urban Myers is the second coming of God. And I'm going to watch my Buckeyes win a national championship this season. And I'm going to watch Georgia fans suffer for another 35 oh, years. Feel- See. See now, <laughs> now
1: now you're trying to give me what's up. But you know, I'm going to let you cook for now. You know, uh I actually had some things planned, uh, some shocking off stuff, but I said, you know what, I'm just gonna I'm gonna leave all the smoking mirrors out. I'm just gonna debate, just talk. Uh, I really had something that probably would have threw you off, but I was like, nah, I'm gonna leave all that out. I'm gonna say that for <laughs> no, my formidable I mean, I'm- opponent, you know. And uh to four when I really need it. You know, I figure I can
2: get away of it. I can take a lot of SEC slander, but don't don't bring up Michigan. The big hey, – like, everything they stand hey, for, you, I hate you,
1: it. You got to give Harbaugh credit,
2: I mean, in, in the short time. True. I mean, absolutely. Absolutely. You, you hey. got to give them credit because, I, honestly, I, I really think they're going to probably be the Big Ten favorite going into the year. We're replacing a lot of talent, man. It's hard to replace 16 starters, you know. So – We'll see. I mean, the dude's getting under a lot of people's skin. I mean, a lot of people down in the Southeast are, are sweating because he's he's reinventing, you know, the wheel. So, and kind of going about, you know, recruiting a lot differently and, and getting into the, the living room of these recruits that really didn't have a ch- you know, that maybe weren't on Michigan's radar. So, we'll see. And I think Kirby's going to do a good job, too. He's just got to keep us out of his backyard. He's got to keep Nick Saban out of his backyard, and he'll be fine.
1: Let, let's be clear. No one in the South is sweating about anything above the Mason-Dixon line. Let's be clear about that, first of all, I don't know. I
2: don't, um, I
1: don't, I, I don't, uh, I don't know, man. They, uh, I, I, mean,
2: I, I know we say that as a fan, but I think administrators yeah. and coaches have said otherwise. I mean, of course, he's not going to out-recruit these guys on an annual basis, but it's the plucking of three to four guys a year that's really going to build their roster. And, and we've seen the, the same with, with Ohio State. I mean, Joey Bosa, Nick Bosa, Von Bell, all these guys, these guys are from the South, man. You're trying to tell me, and and they were all highly recruited, you know, from every major program in the country. And I got it. He may not be a direct threat to their program, but, I mean, he's a guy that's going to come in, get three or four guys that fit his system, who's going to be well-coached, paired with his X's and O's, and his access to the NFL game. Michigan could be a viable threat in the yeah. long run. But I, I totally agree. He's not a he's not a
1: direct threat to them, but we'll see. Yeah, yeah, I think Harbaugh will. And just, I always give Harbaugh this three-year window for Michigan is sick of him. Everybody's in the pick 10 or 6. Just kind of reminiscent of how the 49ers and their coach for six kind of went out the window after his three years of meathead football, we had coaching. Same thing is going to happen in Michigan. He's going to have to win these first two, three years. Um He'll probably win the conference maybe next year. And then once he faces Kirby and Georgia and gets murked, you know, he's going to have to go back to the draft. Man, Georgia ain't okay. missing the South. Yeah.
2: Georgia yeah. is not murking nobody. you got to worry okay. about Florida and, and Tennessee we're first not, not, before you can about, get on Ohio State level.
1: We're not worried about any of those schools. They're all worried about Kirby right now. Kirby was the <laughs> what, what right. I said to realize about Nick Saban is Kirby was the one securing a lot of that talent. Now all. Now,
0: if you start talking about Kirby Smart on this debate anymore, we're just going to keep it muted. So that's how this thing's going to end. <laughs> I want to thank both the participants here, Jay and Marcus. You both did great. I appreciate you guys coming on. On behalf of Marcus, Jay, and myself, I'd like to thank you for tuning into this debate, brought to you, of course, by the Iconoclastically Bombastic Network. Now go to the thread and vote for tonight's victor.